Stay hungry, stay foolish. There's a lot of hype, hand-waving, and ink being spilled about artificial intelligence in business. The amount of coverage of this topic in the trade press and on shareholder calls is evidence of a large change currently underway. It is both awesome and terrifying. What started as an inquiry into how executives can adopt AI to harness the best of human and machine capabilities turned into a much more profound rumination on the future of humanity and enterprise. It is a wake-up call for business leaders across all sectors of the economy. Not only should you implement AI regardless of your industry, but once you do, you should fight to stay true to your purpose, your ethical convictions, indeed your humanity, even as our organizations continue to evolve. While not holding any punches about the dangers posed by AI, today's guest uniquely surveys where technology is limited and where the true opportunities lie amidst all the disruptive change that is currently underway. We welcome author of The Hue Machine, Humankind, Machines, and the Future of Enterprise, John Wood. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aidan. It's a pleasure to be here. John, many of us will be familiar with IBM AI Deep Blue and its victory over the world's greatest chess player, 22-year-old at the time, Garry Kasparov, in 1997. However, many of us will be unfamiliar with the details of that tale and indeed the philosophical fallout of the human defeat, including Kasparov's law. I'd love if you'd start us off today by sharing this story. Sure. Let's keep in mind that at the time of this showdown, it was really a test of IBM. Everyone knew that Garry Kasparov was the greatest. And it wasn't just that he had never lost to a computer. He had never lost in a professional setting. So he was the greatest chess player of all time when he sat down to play Deep Blue. And this wasn't the first time they had had a showdown. He had beat Deep Blue before. And he actually attributes part of his defeat to his own emotions, which is interesting because in our book, we actually talk about the power of emotions as an asset that humans bring to the equation. But under the circumstances, he got flustered and he resigned a match prematurely. He might have been able to salvage that match, but instead he knocked his king over and frustrated, left the table. Uh, but he ultimately lost to Deep Blue. And when he did, it put him in a pretty reflective mood. And, you know, he wanted to make lemonade out of, out of the lemons. And so he looked into the concept of advanced chess. He wanted to explore what would be the highest form of chess playing mastery going beyond just a human and maybe even going beyond just a supercomputer, but what would be the optimal combination uh, for the maximum competitive advantage. And so he left that defeat with an experiment in mind that ended up coming to fruition when they staged the advanced chess tournament. And that tournament itself yielded unexpected results. That's right. And, you know, it, it garnered interest across the world. And we had grandmasters entering, we had all sorts of powerful chess playing computer engines uh, that wanted to be tested out and, and shown off in this tournament. Uh, but there are also a couple of gentlemen who were friends. They were buddies. They played in a chess club together in the United States. Virtual unknowns in the world of competitive chess. 
and they had only recently taken an interest. You know, they'd been playing for a few years. And they had built a custom-made algorithm that was fed data from all of their former matches. And so they weren't geniuses, in all due respect to them, and they weren't using IBM's Deep Blue or a Watson or any other type of powerful chess-playing engine. They just had a little uh, homemade algorithm fed with data that was unique to the two of them. And that algorithm could actually tell them, based on the layout of the board right now, which one of you is going to be inclined to make the best move based on basically historical performance. And these two amateurs ended up winning the tournament. And it was because of a better process. Uh, They had a way of determining which of them would be most competitive, depending on what was happening on the board. And they could use their computers to actually do a deep analysis of their opponent and of the options available to them. And this was a triumph of process over genius and over powerful computing. You took two ordinary people with ordinary computer power and combined them with the right process, and they ended up prevailing over grandmaster chess champions and chess playing engines. And this has essentially vindicated what's become known as Kasparov's Law, where an ordinary human combined with ordinary machines using the right process can create extraordinary results and can triumph over even genius or powerful computers. And I really do think that Kasparov's law is the key to human innovation in the future. Instead of holding out for other pathways to superintelligence, I think that's the way forward. Yeah, and I love this, John, because it's one of the reasons I put this right up front, and as you do in the book, because many executives hear AI or they hear automation and they shut down because there's so many choices with all this, but you break it down into this fundamental way. And I love Kasparov's law as the foundational law behind all this weak human plus machine plus better process is better than strong human plus machine plus inferior process. So process plus humanity become ultimately important. The other side of this, the other force of laws in a way is a paradox, which is more of X paradox, which I'd love you to explain. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I loved how you tell us that our brains have evolved over centuries to perfect skills that are alien to AI, like intuiting somebody else's emotional state while playing chess itself is a more recent skill in our evolutionary process. That's right. So you've written about Moravec's paradox pretty lucidly, and I'll risk oversimplifying by saying it Moravec's paradox holds that where humans are naturally gifted, computers struggle to perform and vice versa. And a way you can understand that is it took the human brain billions of years to evolve the sensory motor controls that we have to be able to dodge something that's thrown at us or sort of instinctively get out of the way or uh, intelligently navigate our environment. And, you know, aside from the breakthroughs happening with the Boston Robotics Group there, it's taken a long time to get computers to, to approach that. Uh, and they still can't read our minds or any of the things that the sort of overhyped headlines are suggesting that AI can do. They're still quite a long ways off from general intelligence. In fact, I don't know, I don't think we're ever going to get to general intelligence. So the kind of intelligence that a 10-year-old human has 
would be absolutely game changing if we could program that in a computer. And I don't think we'll ever get there because it took us a billion years to get there ourselves. But we don't need to actually program computers to be as smart as we are in that general sense, because we have available to us more of X paradox. It's not something that we should try and resolve. It's something that we should embrace. There's so many nuggets in the book, John, and one seemingly throwaway line. The book's deceptive because it looks like, you know, you'll read it in a week like I often have to with the show. But it's so deep that there's so many lines that actually have so much meaning behind them. And, and I extended the length of time for us before we engaged in a conversation because, because of this, because I kept saying, oh, I want to let that marinate for a while. I want to let that seep in. And there was one lovely line, that seemingly throwaway line, which is about our outdated educational systems. And you highlight that, ironically, the last thousand years or so of education has followed a Jesuit tradition emphasizing Aristotelian reasoning, definitions, distinctions, and deductions, and the pursuits of mathematics and science. And I hear you here when you say, why train for a competition for which we are hopelessly outmatched? <laughs> As a rugby player, I, I appreciate your approach to any subject. You want to be able to power through it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I think we need more uh, athletes in intellectual spaces because of that attitude, I think is healthy. But look, I'm not bashing STEM. I think science, technology, engineering, math, critical. We've got to teach that. We have to foster scientific literacy, statistical literacy. Uh, you know, I think, for example, this response to the pandemic would be a lot easier to facilitate if everyone understood statistics and, you know, virus, the nature of viruses. But I think the key that I'm saying here is we need to learn to think with machines instead of being taught to think like machines. Because the way that humans perceive and think and reason about the world is different than the way a robot can be programmed to do. And we're going to unlock the real value of AI if we can use it to augment our intelligence instead of to replace our intelligence. I love that, John, because it's kind of like the idea of embracing diversity in an organization where you embrace everybody's strengths. That neurodiversity gives everybody different strengths. And you even mention, for example, society's failure with neurodiverse symptoms like ASD or autism, where there's so many brilliantly talented people mm -hmm. who are either unemployed or underemployed because of society's approach to them. And if we had a more sophisticated approach towards neurodiversity, we would see computers as a, a neurodiverse type of organism within an organization and embrace that as well. And mm -hmm. as you say, that leads to the human machine. But moving on, one of the things you talk a lot about is context, and it's a huge one. And AI doesn't do context as well as humans. It's great for steady state environments, which no longer exist as we know at the moment. And it's here you raise what is known as the broken leg problem, especially in these hyper-turbulent times. That comes from a, an example of how an actuarial forecast for consumer behavior could break down uh, because of a change in context. And you, know, you could predict how likely is someone to go to the grocery store or to go to the movies based on their historical behavior and what other consumers do. However, the individual in question has a broken leg, and that means they're not going to be driving anywhere. They're not going to be going shopping 
Or you could say the context is there is a global pandemic, so we're being told to shelter in place. So the likelihood that we're going to go to the store is greatly diminished. And if you're just forecasting based on historical data sets, you're not going to see that coming, right? Because the forecasts are like being in a rowboat. You're actually looking backwards while you're moving forwards. So AI is simply limited in a profound way by the data that you feed into the system. And that's generally historical data. And so it's not going to see something coming that's not already in the data. And here you introduce another term, John, I'd love you to share this one, because again, this is the idea of embracing your human skills, and even the weaknesses in those human skills. But you talk about the term bot sourcing, a term I hadn't heard of before. Well, that's good to know, because I thought we coined it. <laughs> bot sourcing is basically outsourcing. Traditionally, outsourcing is when you get a product or a service that you used to develop internally to your company and you hire it out to an outside firm or a foreign company. Bot sourcing is when you replace a traditional business process like customer service with a robot or an automated process. And so bot sourcing is a decision. It's a strategic decision that companies make, just like choosing to outsource or in-house something, choosing to bot source a skill or a task is a strategic decision that executives are faced with. And I think that in general, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for companies to bot source. And I think that they should. And that's probably the competitive thing to do. It's just part of the digital transformation that's been underway for a while. But there are caveats to that. You cannot simply bot source your way to success. Okay, you laid off all of your human workers, you replaced them all with automated process. Now what do you do? I don't think that's a recipe for success either. And it essentially fails because it only looks at human resources as a cost instead of an asset. It only looks at them as a liability to the company that they should try and shed as much of that as possible instead of fully appreciating the robust sets of values that humans bring to an organization. Some of those are countable. Some of them are not countable. Just because you can't count them doesn't mean they don't matter. So I think there are caveats to bot sourcing as a strategy. Some of the companies you mentioned here, which are demonstrating what you call human machine traits on the cutting edge, really, which are Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc. And they use a blend of human and technology in this kind of mindset of bot sourcing. That's right. But I think if you interviewed the leaders of those big companies, they would tell you that the secret to their success is not that they created an AI program that is writing all of their code or that's telling them who to invest in, the secret to their success is human talent. They've become very good at recruiting creative, brilliant human beings. And they've cultivated an office environment that is highly ergonomic. And I think human ergonomics cannot be understated in this technology era. Uh, we have to be creating workspaces that people actually like going to and that they feel comfortable there. And you have to create a culture at work that gives people courage to think creatively and to think out loud. And it's, uh, it's a complicated, nuanced prescription that, that we give in our book, The Roadmap for Creating a Human Machine. And I want to be clear that we're not saying the, the big five are human machines, because that to us is an aspirational target. 
or they've attained super intelligence. And I don't know that any of them have created that yet, but they're exhibiting traits of a human machine. And this is also not an endorsement of anything and everything that those companies do. We're not saying that they're morally superior, but that they have taken steps to foster innovation and to uh, create new innovative structures of governance and management frameworks that are pointing a way towards superintelligence. And we'll come back to that because next we're going to touch on the pathways. Again, pathways to superintelligence, including what you're talking about there, which is organizational superintelligence, where the whole organization are on the same page and embracing technology, etc. So moving on to superintelligence, let's explore solutions such as biological cognitive enhancements, neurolace, whole brain emulation, and organizational network intelligence. This is where you look at where we are headed as a species as man merges with machine. That's right. And this comes from Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, which is a great read. It's very cerebral uh, and it's put together a lot of good information. And he goes through different pathways. And what we do is kind of dive down into them and try and rank them. And ultimately, we find that one of the pathways is not only the most promising, it is literally the only pathway available on any relevant time horizon. And so that's kind of a trump card, especially for enterprise leaders that are looking for solutions they can implement now or next quarter. And they don't have time to wait 20 years for some breakthrough in technology that they can then adopt. So uh, the, the pathway that we point forward the organizational network approach to superintelligence or to create a human machine, I think is the only viable option. But for the listener's sake, I'll go ahead and run through the alternatives. So biological cognitive enhancement, I think, is controversial because it essentially requires a long-term selective breeding program, and that would have to be carried out by a state, a state agency, or some kind of a orchestrated intergenerational campaign. And the last time we had any big ideas about that, it was Nazi Germany. And they were trying to create a superior race. So I just don't trust any uh, institution to carry out a long-term breeding program um, and say that that's going to be good for humanity. Uh, there's just too many moral hazards there. And I don't want to cast dispersions over any AI researchers or cognition experts that are suggesting that is a viable pathway. I just don't trust human nature enough to say that we should be pursuing what I think is an exceedingly dangerous project of social engineering. And even if I didn't have that aversion, I would still say it's not a good idea because at least not for business leaders, because we need solutions we can implement now. And we don't have time for biological cognitive enhancement to play out, which is essentially a sort of guided evolution to select for increasingly more intelligence. Uh, that's just not a viable option on the, on the near term. I thought of Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Deus, and he talks about the gods and the useless here. And if you remember the beginning of the smartphone revolution, mm -hmm. or indeed the computer age, only the wealthy could afford a smartphone or a computer. And I recall Malcolm Gladwell's outliers when he said what gave an advantage to both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates was 
that they had wealth and therefore they could afford their computers. So that gave them a huge advantage over everyone else. And if that happens, because of the concentration of wealth, some people are going to have a, a big head start. And then they may see the rest of us, you know, if we're rendered unemployed, they may see the rest of us as the useless. Yeah, it's certainly a possible outcome. And if humanity splits like that, there's been sci-fi along that theme. But if humanity splits between essentially the demigods and the useless, the useless will be to the demigods what chimpanzees or mice are to us now. And that's a very awful position to be in. And so, you know, this is a, a technology policy is inherently political. And I think that it's disingenuous to try and talk about technology policy and where this should go without considering the very real human ramifications and how it's going to affect society. And frankly, I think that with social media and with digitization and with the spread of smartphones that are essentially surveillance light or sort of voluntary surveillance, we've unleashed a lot of technology on society with ever, without ever having an explicit discussion about what it's going to do to us, how it's going to shape our choice architecture, how it's going to shape the landscape. I mean, so many of these companies, they own the intellectual property that modern society is based upon now. And uh, no one's supposed to own the air. No one's supposed to own the sea, right? And so the frontier, this digital frontier of the internet, that's the new sidewalk and street and subway that we, we live our lives on. You know, for example, some states are, the judicial branch is adopting Zoom conference call technology to host judicial proceedings wow. because they have to find a way to carry on business during the pandemic with social distancing. And so, you know, part of me is saying that's great. We've got to keep the wheels of justice turning. But at the same time, there have been serious privacy concerns raised about Zoom, and they're getting a lot of attention on that now. Uh, and so we have to think about the digital infrastructure that we're living our lives on, and is it systematically adv giving advantages to certain classes of people and systematically disadvantaging other classes of people? And to the extent we can, we should fine-tune these platforms and the software and the AI to be ethical, to be sensitive to those ethical issues, uh, and there needs to be transparency. And right now, that's certainly not the case. Uh, the GDPR in Europe has, you know, made some progress, but uh, you know, intellectual property law actually stymies attempts at transparency. If you can claim that, look, our code is a trade secret, the data that we're feeding into it that's also proprietary. Um, we're not going to disclose that. that. That raises real problems in terms of accountability and transparency over these platforms. So yeah, technology policy is politics. Let's stay on this for the moment, because I know this is one of your areas of expertise, the legal aspects of this, and you devote a whole chapter to this. So we'll come back to the pathways. Let's stay on, on privacy, etc. There's a quasi arms race between organizations and corporate secrecy means there's no public accountability nor surveillance of what they're building behind the closed doors. And this is one of the problems. That's right. They are unleashing AI into the wild. And the only real regulations we have in the United States about consumer data and privacy 
are banking and healthcare. And even then, the personal protected information is there's so many loopholes in HIPAA, for example, the healthcare law that you could, you know, Google's sent millions and millions of personal health records without a single violation because there's so many exceptions for population health research and for healthcare payment treatment operations and other types of exceptions. So the legal frameworks that we have are totally unfit for this and we're left with industry self-policing, which I'd like to think is laudable for industry to step up and say, we're going to have our own standards, but it's clearly deficient from an enforcement point of view. Yeah. And you mentioned so many of the risks here. And one of them is something that's called effect recognition. And I thought instantly here of the state of affairs in China, in this kind of surveillance state and the internet of eyes. And that reminded me of Philip K. Dick's short story, which became the movie, The Minority Report. And perhaps you might elaborate on this because this is a real threat, particularly in these moments of COVID-19, because regulation is getting pushed through that needs to be thought about. And this is one of the risks and, you know, the serendipity of having you on the show now, we'd booked this in such a long time ago, that some of the risks you highlight, they're very much heightened because of COVID-19 and the ability to push through emergency regulation. That's right. Yeah. You know, never let a crisis go to waste is the philosophy of so many in the governing class. Um, powered by artificial intelligence, facial recognition technology has been around for a while. And it's, you know, the camera on the stoplight can spot you in a crowd. And in that way, it's already scary uh, because you're essentially uh, giving away your whereabouts at any given time and this sort of centralized repository of images. Um, in itself, it can be dealt with. These images can be uh, used for proper law enforcement purposes. Um, but when you combine it with other agendas or with this sort of new concept of affect recognition, uh, that's when it gets really creepy and perverse. And the, the notion behind affect recognition, which by the way, I think is irresponsible for companies to be selling this. Let me be clear about that. They're saying we have this scanning system that can determine what the subject is feeling and thinking and what they're motivated by and whether or not they have the flu based on the way their face looks. Like they're going to detect inner feelings and mental states based on a face. And this is really just a modern day iteration of phrenology, which is again, what the Nazis were doing. So not a good idea. We should learn from history here. And it's being used to control crowds. It's being used uh, for security purposes that involve all kinds of human rights trade-offs. And, you know, it's also being used in more sort of garden variety situations like during the screening of an employee, right? You sit down for an interview and before you even get to meet with the potential hirer, somebody that can make the decision to hire you, you have to stare into a, a camera and answer some interview questions. And the camera studies your face and says, hmm, does this person look agreeable enough? Do they look like the kind of person that would make a good employee. And you now have bias built in, right? Because they're looking at historical hires as what is what do the faces look like from people we've hired in the past? And unless you look like that, you're going to be deviant and you're not going to get that interview. 
And so it's a way of essentially reinforcing whatever bias was built into your historical data set. It's going to be perpetrated into the future unless we can actually de-bias those data sets. I thought of it. Imagine you and I are interviewing and we have an AI with us. Call it Hal, right? So Hal's in the corner and we're like, and we interview somebody and they come in and go, I really like that guy. And you're like, yeah, I really like him. I think he'll be a great fit. And Hal turns around and he's like, I don't think so, John. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? I didn't like the look of his face. Right. But, uh, it does, <laughs> it ra raises the really interesting thing of bias because this has come up in some programs where AI was scanning resumes, etc. that the already existing biases were reinforced. For example, gender bias because of the historical data of remuneration. And therefore, they were regurgitated and they had a, an impact on the outcome of the choice of candidate, etc. So I'd love if you'd share a little bit about this side of bias. Sure. Well, you know, we, we think of bias in the workforce, uh, we're thinking in terms of age discrimination, gender, race, ethnicity uh, discrimination, where people are, are essentially not getting the opportunities they deserved on the merit because of these facts about them that they necessarily can't control. Uh, or they're being discriminated against because of that. And there's been a whole lot of work done to try and identify and rectify that type of discrimination at work and in government uh, across the world. Um, and a lot of that work can basically be undone by automating, hiring, promotion, those kind of decisions. Do we give this couple a bank loan? Do we underwrite this insurance policy? Do we offer them coverage? Uh, those kind of decisions, we're automating them now in a way that suspends whatever ethical conviction that the hirer wanted, the employer or the underwriter wanted to, to apply. And we're delegating that now to a, to a bot. And they're fed historical data sets and they're going to select for whatever was selected for in the past which is the past that we're trying to break with and improve ourselves morally over time. And so in order to de-bias, and there's some codes of conduct and ethical promises that some developers have made, and that's sort of a good form of self-policing. But we need to have some accountability within the algorithms. We need to be able to open up the black box and understand why we're getting the recommendations we're getting. And that's one of the deep flaws and hopefully something that can be addressed in the future of of using algorithms is that you know neural nets are a black box their designers can't always explain how it gave us that output and in decisions like buying and selling stocks or do i enable the brakes or turn into oncoming traffic or do i give this person a job or not those decisions have literal life and death consequences and major financial ramifications. And we can't as yet understand why the algorithm's telling us to do what it is telling us to do. And I think that's irresponsible. And it certainly doesn't withstand legal scrutiny. If I'm representing somebody who is injured by an autonomous vehicle, uh, I, I'm not going to say, oh, I see you turned into oncoming traffic because the algorithm said so. Well, I guess I'll just dismiss the case then. No, that's not satisfying. 
you know, we're, we're going to take our pound of flesh from somebody. And if it's not that it's not going to be the algorithm standing trial, it's going to be the executives that decided to push it into production based on code that they didn't understand written by temp programmers who were given no voice and the actual architecture, but were just meeting demands of their employer. So I think we need to get much smarter and em- embrace accountability and have transparent AI, and that's going to make it more trustworthy and more reliable, and we're going to get a more humane outcome with greater levels of adoption if we can understand it. And uh, and it's also going to be more defensible from the executive point of view. If they can actually explain the algorithm's output, they're going to be able to defend themselves much better. This is something you highlight, that there has to be that accountability from a company perspective. This is what you talk about when you talk about wild AI, where essentially AI is released into the wild as a social experiment and it's let's see what just happens. And, you know, I find it contradictory as the innovation show or when you're talking about innovation, regulation can often hamper innovation. And indeed, in times like now with COVID-19, emergency legislation can be fast-tracked. However, this is not something we want with AI. Here you cite the principle known as the precautionary principle. That's right. This goes back to first principles of governance and law and why do we regulate versus letting the market uh, take its course and there's different philosophical approaches uh, to government and the sort of again risking the oversimplification the two big philosophies are a precautionary principle on one hand which is sort of the european union regulatory philosophy and a cost-benefit analysis philosophy, which is sort of the American way. And the precautionary principle, and it's nuanced. Okay, these are philosophical ideas that have spawned a lot of research and refinement. So I am oversimplifying here. Uh, But we'll just say the precautionary principle finds its champions among the public health advocates the environmental policy advocates, doctors, and uh, consumer protection people. And the cost-benefit analysis perspective finds its champions in the Chamber of Commerce and in industry. And so you can see how the two philosophies are competing over limited governmental resources in terms of how and when do we regulate a problem. And, and generally speaking, I think the precautionary principle makes a lot of sense when the risks are irreversible. And when we talk about the control problem, as Bostrom defines it, with uh, a potential uh, singleton artificial intelligence, um, we have an irreversible risk. If we were to create a singleton AI, we can't uncreate it. It's now the genie's out of the bottle. And we should uh, take a precautionary approach to that. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because even from an innovation perspective or you're a startup, the whole idea of an MVP and get it out there and learn from the mistakes and then build upon those mistakes, we can't do that here. And that's the counterintuitive aspect of all this, uh, particularly for innovators and those pushing the boundaries of technology. Because they're doing it 
exactly why the human race has got to where it is today. They're using their ingenuity, they're using their innovative mindsets, their creativity, etc. But here we need to check it back a little bit because there's going to be unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. That's right. In general, I think we should all agree that regulatory decisions should be based on sound science and technically rigorous risk assessment. And that means that we're considering the evidence and not turning a blind eye to downside risks. One of the other things, John, I, I thought I'd mention is the weaponization of AI, including deep fakes and spam bots. And we talked about deep fakes on the show before, but uh, perhaps you could start this topic like you do in the chapter on the topic of deep fakes with GAN, generative adversarial networks themselves. Sure. When you have a military commander say, this is the future of cyber security, that should worry you because that means they're not ready for it yet. They're hoping that it's in the future because they're not ready today. And generative adversarial networks were invented by a researcher at Google. And, and, and essentially, you've got one network that's uh, the deceiver and the other network that is the investigator trying to root out which is a fake and which is real. And they learn from each other. And it's like iron sharpens iron. Um, as one of them gets increasingly better at discriminating true from false, the other one gets in- increasingly good at deception. And using generative adversarial networks, we can now generate synthetic media that to the naked eye is indistinguishable from a real video, a real audio, uh, and it would take some pretty serious forensic analysis to debunk. And it's open source too, by the way, and I'm generally a fan of open source software, but this means that it doesn't take a big Hollywood budget to produce very convincing CGI. And if you feed in enough video and audio of a certain person into the algorithm, you can basically type in a script that you would want that person to say and do. And we can now do full body deep fakes. And uh, that's incredibly pernicious. And that's why I've given talks about this to the New York State Bar and Lawmakers are being briefed on this now, and that's good. Twitter has actually enacted a deep fakes policy. They're calling it the synthetic media policy, where they're flagging deep fakes and potentially banning them from Twitter because you could have a deep fake of a president or a prime minister saying or doing things that they never did. You could have a deep fake of a CEO bashing his own or her own company's products and tanking their stock price. And that could be used by people betting and trying to short the company. And there's all sorts of espionage and real pain and suffering that could be caused with deepfakes. And at the same time, our attempt to regulate deepfakes runs up into the US Constitution and to norms around freedom of speech and creative expression. And so where do you draw the line between what would be a permissible political cartoon using a likeness of a public official to make a point versus creating a deep fake of that public official. And that's a hard line to draw. And so far, the laws that I've seen dealing with deep fakes that are promoted by the states and the federal government in, in the US, they're either full of loopholes or they would be 
subject to constitutional challenge where they'd probably be stricken down under the U.S. Constitution. So I haven't seen a really good approach from lawmakers yet to the problem of deep fakes. We're seeing some leadership out of the private sector. I think that CEOs understand they don't want a deep fake of themselves going around. What are you going to do? Issue a press release? You know, and the, the reason why it's such a devastating problem is because humans, our vision is probably the most sophisticated information processing system in the known universe is our ability to, to see and to process our environment. And it is now no longer reliable because what you cannot believe what you're seeing. And I don't think as a society we're ready for that. And that's something that keeps me up at night. Yeah, I agree with you, man. And, and one of the things is just the proliferation of social media. Last week, I had Jody Jackson on the show, fantastic author, whose book is You Are What You Read. And she talked about the problem with the news today and that the news basically informs us. And because it informs us, it creates a reality. It basically informs us of what's going on in the world. But if we can't trust that, we don't know where to look for news. And mm -hmm. it, it actually can have a profound effect on our anxiety levels. So there's a huge issue burgeoning here that really does need to be addressed. And the flip side of all this, as you do talk about in the book, is the positive sides of these things, because GANs can be used for huge positive effects in society. But unfortunately, as you said, there's always a, a dark side. It's like the force. <laughs> you can use it for <laughs> the good or, or for the bad. And let's flip back now to, I mentioned earlier on, pathways, because you do a great job outlining the pathways, because the pathways ultimately lead to the human machine, which is be a lovely way to kind of crescendo today's show. And you mentioned already biological cognitive enhancements, but next you talk about neurolace, whole brain emulation, and then the one I love, which is organizational network intelligence. But let's share a bit about neurolace because here most of us may think of Elon Musk if we're familiar with it, but there's huge limitations mm -hmm. to this. That's right. And let me just say, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. He's one of my favorite billionaires. So ton of respect for him and his thinking. But I find neural lace as a research agenda to be deeply problematic. And another disclaimer, it can have real promise for people that have vision or cognitive decline and that are just looking for a way to compensate for that. It's essentially, um, if you think about it in terms of a, a turbocharged hearing aid, but to restore vision or to restore cognitive function that's been impaired. That's one thing, you know, there's a medical case for that. But what I'm deeply skeptical of is using this as an attempt to make us more intelligent, to take a normal human brain and to upgrade it by literally putting hardware in it and connecting it to the internet or to your cell phone. And that's what Neuralink is selling right now. And you know, they've, they've got a lot of primary research to do in terms of trying to actually write a code for read-write functions where you could scan the brain and, and pull signal from the brain and also send information to the brain. But I just think there's so many problems with that. And I've written on this and I feel like I'm shouting into the void though, because this technology is coming. And when you've got powerful people leaning their shoulders into it, there's not much we can do about it. Think about it this way. Your computer is hackable. Your phone is hackable. 
It's basically a surveillance device. Why would you put it inside your brain? Because if someone can hack your phone, they can then hack your brain. And they could, for example, they could give you this low-level, non-conscious, negative stimuli every time you see a certain word or see a certain person or type of person and then turn you into a disbeliever or a believer or a racist without even you knowing it by programming you like that. And so that's just one example. And so the whole brain computer interface, I think we need to take a very hard look at that line of research. There's uh, headlines out there now about BCI that can read your thoughts pre-speech. And again, who is this helping? Okay, if you have locked-in syndrome, then it's useful to you. But how many people have locked-in syndrome? Is that really what's driving this technology? Is that really why the researchers are being funded? It's to help people with locked-in syndrome? I, I doubt that. I, I don't like to think of a world where this happens, but that's the world we're in. You could imagine being interrogated with a brain-computer interface hooked up to your skull. And they're asking you questions and you're invoking your Fifth Amendment right to remain silent in the U.S. And they're saying, okay, but your brain is telling us you said yes. You're thinking yes. We can read your brain. So you answered yes to this question, even though you invoked your right to remain silent. And, you know, could that happen? Of course it could. Do we have any protections against that now? No, because the technology doesn't exist yet. But I'm saying we need to get out ahead of the technology. We know which direction it's heading in. The people behind it and are funding it are already out there hyping it. They're marketing this. This is going to be the next way to expand human intelligence. One thing that I also find disingenuous is the notion that neural lace is going to somehow protect us from the singularity. It's going to keep us relevant in the event of a singularity. That's disingenuous because neural lace is the singularity. <laughs> the first. The first person who plugs their brain into a computer and says they now have special powers because they have a higher processing speed or whatever, say a CEO does that. All of the CEO's competitors are then going to be pressured to do that too. All of the people that report to the CEO are going to be pressured to do that too. And so there's a public policy issue here. Even if the technology were safe and effective, I don't think that we should normalize drilling a hole in your skull and plugging your computer into your brain. I don't think that should be a precondition for getting a job. It's just such a, it's not thought through. And you know, when you, I'm sure, you know, the inspiration might've come from the matrix or something where you can download Chinese all of a sudden and you're super intelligent or your focus and attention can be hypercharged. But the problem is then, as you say, Everything in the internet can be both a delivery of information, but also can take information. And if they can read your thoughts to a certain extent, plus add on what we talked about earlier on the effect recognition, you're actually in a very dangerous mode because somebody could say, oh, I, I could see like in Minority Report, you were about to commit a crime, or I can see you were thinking negatively about John's book, for example. And you're kind of going, no, I wasn't. And they're going, oh, we can tell by your face and your thoughts. And you're going to go, crap, I need to get this machine out of my head. And, you know, yeah. it's those things. 
That is a dystopian yeah, world. It is, but and, and let, let's let's keep off that because what I want to emphasize about this book is it's it's a very very positive book. It's the idea that yes, there's limitations to machines. Yes, there's limitations to humans, but put them together, not merged as a human machine, but working together, embracing each other's strengths, and you can lead to this unbelievable organizational super intelligence. So the next one then is, I loved your explanation, John, of whole brain emulation. And the reason I'm dwelling on these pathways is that many people I know get confused between them all. But this path in particular, whole brain emulation, is actually feasible because it means we do not need to build a super intelligence at all. That's right. And it's a nice alternative to the neural lace cyborg approach, which I think is morbid. Whole brain emulation is an alternative. It is essentially creating a digital replica of the human brain, which is, we understand it now, the most powerful information processing engine in the universe. And if we could make a digital version of it, it would be unlimited in its memory and its attention span and its energy and its processing speed. Uh, you wouldn't need sleep or caffeine. Uh, it would just be a game changer. And Nick Bostrom takes this seriously as a path to super intelligence. And I, I think that it's something to consider. And the reason why we don't endorse this is not because of any inherent flaws in the idea, but rather, practically speaking, it's too far into the future. And as a solution for enterprise, it's not available right now. It might not be available for decades to come. But it's a very interesting idea, and it, it involves vitrifying an actual human brain post-mortem, okay? So preferably belonging to somebody who is a certified genius, resting in peace, and they take the brain tissue, they essentially turn it into glass, and then they slice it up and feed it into a scanner that could recognize the unique structural and chemical elements of the brain. And that's the raw data that would be inputted into a computer that would then reconstruct a map, a three-dimensional neural network of that brain and overlay on that map a library of neurocomputational models of different types of neurons and connections. And so you're scanning in the brain, there's a translation and a simulation of the actual physical neural structures of the human brain. And I don't see why, in theory, that shouldn't actually give rise to the same consciousness that the living brain had. And there's an interesting philosophical debate to be had there, but it would be the functional equivalent of the brain, but it would just be emulated on a supercomputer. It would be running as software. Yeah, I love that one, John, because again, when you think of actually how the brain works, neurons fire and they wire together. And essentially, it's what a neural net does. The digital neurons fire or wire, connect dots, etc. And this is what we're getting at with this whole brain emulation. That's right. And so anyone that could afford one would buy one. Any company would have access to this unlimited brain power. And we may end up getting there. But right now, our models of how the brain actually functions are too nascent. They're, neuroscience is really in its infancy and the big picture. Uh, we don't understand the brain all that well yet. And so our philosophical concepts are too immature. And the ability to actually 
simulate the brain functioning with billions of interconnections, our program's not that mature yet either. So it's theoretically possible, but practically unavailable on relevant time horizons. And this really the audience for our book is, is CEOs and executives and policymakers. What can we do now to enhance the intelligence of humanity? And that's a promising pathway, but it's not necessarily open to us yet. So let's get on to that, because this is the real zenith of this book, which is the idea of an organizational collective superintelligence. And this is my favorite. And apart from the opportunity to succeed for a virtuous organization, if the internet wakes up to be something more than, in air quotes, connected, it will lead to a collective superintelligence opportunity. But let, let's talk about the organizational collective superintelligence first, and then we'll go into how this can work from an organizational perspective, a business perspective, and then perhaps from a, a universal perspective. Well, very simply, organizational network intelligence is a unified collection of human minds and bots on a platform. And it could be an internet connection or a CRM platform in a way that integrates into a collective intelligence the individual minds that are plugged into it. And so it's not just an assemblage of loosely interacting smaller minds, but a fully integrated collective intellect, the whole of which would be greater than the sum total of its parts. And although it's controversial to say in philosophical quarters, it would have collective intentionality, I believe, that it would have this irreducible causal efficacy that the entity itself would be making decisions, coming up with ideas, solving problems, so that it would be literally true to say Microsoft invented a new operating system. And that statement isn't simply reducible to any individual programmer within Microsoft, but as a collective intelligence. So we can get there. And we think that collective intelligence is the most promising. It's the only pathway that's theoretically and practically attainable right now. And we don't think that it's merely a bridge to superintelligence. We don't think that it's merely an enabling layer to get us to biological cognitive enhancement or neural lace or whole brain emulation. We think that it is an end in itself to create collective intelligence. And also, if we follow Kasparov's law, this is a direct upshot of following Kasparov's law. We don't need supercomputers or geniuses to create extraordinary intelligence if we simply combine ordinary human minds and computer powers using the right process. Yeah, and there's a key ingredient required, and you tell us this, John, which I love. And when talking about organizational superintelligence, you always highlight the need for the organization to be primed and prepared so that it emerges. And I love the word that you use there, emerges, because concurrently to this show, we had the amazing D. Hawk, the founder and CEO emeritus of Visa on the show. We did a documentary with him, an eight-part documentary. And he consistently used that word emerge when he spoke of creating Visa. He said he built the organization on honorable principles 
hired the right people, and then created the conditions for the success to emerge. And that is a key ingredient for the human machine. That's right. And it's sort of borrowing from evolutionary theory, from Darwinian evolutionary theory, that the new species emerges. It wasn't specifically programmed or designed for. It is something that emerges out of an environment that has all the right preconditions there. And so I think that's the right approach. We want to create the enabling layer and the preconditions for random mutation, right? It's not a transformation from one steady state to another, but a organizational philosophy that has open, porous boundaries that has a flat and fluid, not a hierarchy, but a flat and fluid structure and that enables the best ideas to float up and that supercharges ordinary people to think greatly. And it might sound fanciful right now that the internet might just wake up, for example, but at some point life on the planet woke up and consciousness emerged. And that is the evolutionary historical precedent for what we're looking at now. We have the organizational infrastructure that is designed to enable the emergence of intelligence. And if you can maintain that long enough, it will emerge as a response to evolutionary pressures and competition. Yeah, and I do believe, John, I believe you're on the right path. And I do believe that the internet, it means that it's allowing us to connect. It's allowing people who are similarly minded to connect. And that's how edge behaviors emerge because of the internet, even having a new Reddit forum, for example, for people who are into piercing, whatever it may be, that's how the edge mm -hmm. behaviors, the dots start connecting and then they become a movement. I'm a huge believer in the idea of the noosphere, a thinking layer surrounding our planet. And it's essentially like the biosphere for our thoughts. One of the things that bugs me at the moment with the whole COVID-19 thing is the noosphere is infected so much with fear itself that people are fearful and when we're fearful, we're less intelligence, and then therefore we let through regulation perhaps that we wouldn't have in the past. And it actually fast tracks AI. But on a positive note, this idea of the thinking layer surrounding the planet, and if we get it right, and this opportunity perhaps that we're going through now is a, an opportunity for a rebirth, that it's linked to a great line, and essentially the bottom line from the book, and you say the evolution of people organized in enterprises that attain the status of human machines is the next step in the evolution of biological life on this planet. That's right. I think that the human machines will be like the crown sitting on the head of intelligence on the planet. And that intelligent life is going to evolve through that path. Uh, that's the trunk of the tree is going to come up through that. And that we, it's hard for us to imagine what the future of intelligent life is going to be in all of its diversity and all of its newfound powers once we get enough progress down that evolutionary path. And I think that the words from the author of The Phenomenon of Man are pretty eloquent here. And he wrote this in 1955, the Jesuit anthropologist. Now, at long last, the processes of cultural evolution have generated another envelope superimposed on the biosphere, i.e. a sheet of humanized and socialized matter, which is the newosphere. 
The noosphere emerges as a result of the interactions of increasing activity of human networks, creating a highly charged thinking layer, a mental sheath above and discontinuous with the biosphere, functionally not unlike a planetary nervous system. And I think that it's amazing that he wrote that before the internet and sounds prophetic now. And I think that's the big picture framework that we should be thinking about the path forward here. It's not just about myopically, is my company going to be competitive? We're literally talking about the destiny of humankind and what our, the next century is going to look like. We're defining that now and the terms and conditions that we set for the use of AI. And I hope we get it right. And John, for people who want to find more about you, your legal work, et cetera, where can they find you? You can connect with me on Twitter at John Wood Torch. You can look us up on thehumachinebook.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, John Wood. And I look forward to engaging. Author of The Hue Machine, Humankind, Machines, and the Future of Enterprise, John Wood. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure.